Hey you, thanks for tuning into the Waiting List Podcast. I'm Long Long. I'm Daniel. And I'm Jacqueline. And we are three watch friends with a healthy obsession for watches. So sit back and relax with us while we chat with collectors, industry giants, and share some good vibes. Hi everyone, uh, welcome back to this week's episode. Um, today we have Kevin, aka they did from instagram i'm sure many of you um who listen to this podcast have come across kevin's profile in um any sort of way Uh, he curates a really really well selected collection of vintage watches um and a little bit of modern but if you're into vintage and those kind of like really cool barn finds even though they're not found from barns um definitely check kevin's um profile out he has a lot of cool vintage cartiers which i know a lot of you might like so um kevin welcome on to the waiting list yeah thanks for having me it's really yeah. cool yeah um we already were chatting a little bit be- uh, before the recording so we're just gonna dive straight in with um tell us like a little bit of your background and then tell us how you got into watches some 20 years ago so background um grew up in outside of washington dc um and like suburb of dc uh grew up um really just my whole life was skateboarding that's that's it that's uh i was just like obsessed with skateboarding from a very early age started skating seriously around age 10 um it was my complete everything um my identity my my life my whatever you want to say like um and that's like watches were not even in my i don't know like i didn't pay attention to them at all like the only kind of expensive thing that I liked was, um, was cameras. I, I, cause I grew up, I wasn't that good at skating. I was like the fat kid. So I wasn't as good as my other friends. And even my brother who started skating a couple years after me was super talented. So, um, I, I, I found my place in skateboarding as a videographer and a photographer. So documenting what my friends were doing. Um, and I grew up like we didn't have money. So my family didn't have money. So I got a job at a really early age. I got a work permit at age 14, started working at a local fast food restaurant, saved up enough money to buy a camera to film my friend's skateboard. And, um, you know, that it was like $3,000, which was like more than both my parents' cars combined at the time. It took me eight months. Um, so So at the very early age, I learned like about nice quality things, like nice camera, nice lens, like, um, editing equipment, um, Back then, we could just like rip software off of whatever website there was where you could just steal the software. But uh, but yeah, so that was my whole life. And I, after high school, I did video production. I worked for a video production company. And then the guy who ran the company was retiring and I could only get freelance work because I worked full time for him. Um, my dad was a goldsmith. So I grew up around the jewelry business. My dad didn't work in a jewelry store. He went to jewelry stores, picked up repairs and, and brought them home. And he had a bench at the house. So he was like a carpenter by day and a jeweler by night. And so when I was only getting freelance video work, um, it wasn't really enough to, to, you know, make good money going from making like a full salary to just doing freelance. So my dad was like, well, let me get you a job at one of the jewelry stores that I do repairs for 
in the meantime, while you're looking for another full-time video gig, I didn't want to work at a jewelry store because like I'm a skater. Like I didn't want to wear a suit. I didn't, it was like, whatever. So he got me a job at like a pawn shop that he did jewelry repairs for. And because of my dad's background, they put me in the jewelry department when I started at that pawn shop. And one of my jobs at that pawn shop was to not only buy and sell jewelry, but buy and sell luxury high-end watches. So not only did I have to sell them, but I had to buy them off the street. So the number one thing that we had to do was identify if they were real or fake because people would just bring them in and, you know, we, I had to learn, like, take them apart, look at the movements, look at the serial numbers, like do research online, like all this stuff. And it became like a game. Like whenever a watch would come and be like, all right, now, now is like the time to, to learn, you know, and it was exciting. It was like a thrill, you know, to kind of like get to the bottom of it. Cause you're coming from knowing nothing to like, having to decide if you're going to give this person $2,000 for something that's really only worth like $50, or if you're going to give them $2,000 for something that's worth $5,000, like you just didn't know. So it became this like big thrill. I became infatuated with it. And once you start seeing the real thing, um, and like looking at these movements and how they're made, like I just started having this sort of appreciation for them and then wanted to own some watches. So I started out just buying like one watch a year. And um, that's all I could afford was like save up my money buy one watch a year. And uh, yeah, like, that's how I started. And I just got so and I don't know, whenever I get into stuff, like, I get really obsessive. So like with skateboarding, I got really into it, it became my entire life when it came to videography. Um, and photography, it became my entire life. I became like a nerd about that stuff. Same thing with music, you know, like I was really into music and, you know, I, I was like just infatuated. So the same thing happened with watches. And then with, I just went down the rabbit hole, went on all the forums, like asked a bunch of questions, started going to get togethers. At that time, there was nobody my age really collecting watches. So when I would go to get togethers and when I was like 20, 21, 22 years old, everybody there was like my dad through my grandfather's age. So it was really like a weird thing. And then on the forums, it wasn't really like it is now where everybody's like nice and welcoming. Um, you sort of had to like earn your place and people would like, I don't know, like I would get a lot of crap from people, um, but I learned a lot. So like within a few years of just being a nerd, I guess in my area, like the DC area, I became known as like the local watch expert. So all the jewelers, the watchmakers, the ADs, when they would get stuff in and didn't know, is it authentic? Is it original? The value, blah, blah, blah. They would just call me. And so I kind of just made that name for myself around my local, my local area. And, um, you know, started, but I, I, you know, just as a collector, you know, and I collected modern watches in my early twenties. And then in my late twenties, um, a lot of things were changing in my life. So I, I, uh, lost a bunch of weight. I'd been really overweight my entire life. I lost a hundred over a hundred pounds in like 10 months, just changing my diet. And like, really, you know, like I got really obsessive about that too, like really into health and wellness, still a big part of my life today. And then, um, I was having my first child. And so those changes in my life, like my wrist shrunk an inch. Um, so I, I, I was into like Panerai and IWC before those were like too big for me now. Um, so I started getting into vintage. I just felt older. I was becoming a dad. Like my life was changing so much. Um, I got into vintage and I remember like clearly distinctly, like me and Adam Golden 
from men to watches. We were really good friends at that point. We both collected like modern watches and stuff. And, um, you know, we both got into vintage around the same time. And uh, we were just, it was me, Adam and Eric Wind. And we would just like had this group chat text and we would go back and forth and send each other stuff we would find on eBay or stuff we would find locally. And back then the watches were cheap. So we would just buy as many watches as we could to like, just take them apart, see what was going, see what was up with them, see how good they were, like see if we liked them. And then that's how we learned so much about these watches early on was because they were really accessible and really inexpensive and you could just take a shot, you know? And so I ended up selling like my entire modern watch collection, um, bunch of Panerai's, bunch of IWC's and just having all this money to play with to get into vintage and learn. And then I really got an idea of what I really liked, you know, um, which ended up being like Movado chronographs, IWC Calatravas, like the early, like night, late 30s, early 40s IWCs. Um, and then later on, uh, Cartier tanks, uh, reverse, uh, you know, Jaeger reversos um and just oddball stuff like that um and yeah it all stems from from kind of that experimental period of getting into vintage and just buying everything you know seeing what i truly like so that's kind of like i guess a summary of the whole background of how i kind of got got into this thing yeah i when you were talking about the pawn shop story i was like damn you would be like really good at negotiating then <laughs> <laughs> yeah kind of i mean you know it's one of those things like you feel people out and you see wh where you can go i mean i'm also like just like I, I don't know what it is like um i have this like um i can't be like i'm very blunt and very honest but that's good and bad because like when you're really blunt and really honest it can help you with negotiating but at the same time like i'm not one of those people that can just be like see a great watch and be like, oh yeah, this is a piece of junk. It's not worth anything. Even though I know deep down, it's a really great watch. Like the way that the kind of person that I am, like my passion, like they can see it on my face. They can like see, like, I don't have a way of like hiding if I'm like, excited about something or if something's great. So on some level, like I'm not the best negotiator because mm. of that. Like, you know, like uh, I just, I wear my emotions on my sleeve. So like, if I'm bummed about something, like you're going to know I'm bummed. Like, um, a, a lot of my friends growing up, like with skating and stuff, like, I think like sometimes there would be like built up resentment because they could tell if I was like disappointed, if they like weren't giving it their all or like, mm. if they weren't like living up to like, you know, they would tell me like what their goals were in skating. And I would try to hold them to those goals, like try to hold them accountable and kind of be like, kind of their coach, you know, like you, you know, you can do this, like we can make this happen together, you know? And, and if the, and if the, if like they were partying too much and like not putting as much into skating, like I didn't want to like get in a fight with them. Like, it's not like skating's their job. It's just something we do for fun, but we take it really seriously. But like, I couldn't hide my disappointment. And it's the same thing with like something when I'm excited, it's like really hard for me to hide it. So, um, you know, it's a gift and a curse, I guess. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I don't know that I was like, really the best negotiator there was definitely other colleagues in the pawn business that were just like they were just jerks and so like they could you know they knew how to like wheel and deal a little bit better mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean i wouldn't say that i'm the worst but i'm definitely not not the best yeah did you ever get into collecting sneakers i know you're like sneakers is a big part of your life too 
Yeah, so sneakers I, is the first thing I started collecting. So um, I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know if it's like, so one of my friends, Phil, um, he actually owns a, a clothing company out of California called Lady White Co. Um, I, uh, I would say like, he kind of put it perfectly. Like as skateboarders, um, we don't have a uniform. Like, like our, our heroes don't wear a uniform. They don't wear colors, you know? We watch skateboard videos and we see images, photos, and magazines. And whatever the people are wearing, we become like, we idolize that stuff. So like, if like we're infatuated with like fashion, like what people are wearing, like how they express themselves. Um, and so I don't know why, but even I even think it stems before skateboarding because I remember like, even like when the Reebok pumps came out, like asking my grandma, cause my parents didn't have the money, but like asking my grandma if I could like cut her grass so she could get me these Reebok pumps. And mm. I was, this was like before I even started skating. But once I started skating, there were like these little catalogs called CCS catalogs. And um, you, they, they had like all the, they had like a shoe section and like all the boards and all this stuff. And like, you would circle the ones that you would want. And then I would give it to my mom and like, she would order it for Christmas or maybe my birthday or something, you know? And just like, I would study those. Like I would study those like catalogs of sneakers. And I was just obsessed at a very young age um, with sneakers. And, you know, growing up, not having a lot of money, like you, you could only get, I could only get sneakers on my birthday or Christmas. And my birthday is in January and Christmas is in December. Well, all the best shoes come out in spring, summer. So I would see like an air, I remember distinctly the Air Max 97 coming out, the silver bullet Air Max. They don't think they called it the silver bullet back then. They just called it the silver. It was like the original Air Max 97, but the silver one with the red check with the air bubble on the sole. I distinctly remember that shoe and wanting that shoe. And it came out like spring, summer. And I asked for it for Christmas. But by the time Christmas rolled around, the shoe was discontinued. It was that color was gone. It was over. So when I started, um, got a work permit, started working and making my own money, I guess like the PTSD from missing out of all those shoes, like previous, whenever I would see a dope pair of shoes that I liked, I would just buy it. Even if I didn't intend to wear it, I would, I just, I don't know how to explain it, but to me, sneakers are just beautiful. Like they're just, a, they're, they're beautiful to me. Um, I don't know. I don't know other, any other way to, to put it. Like they're like art to me like the shape of the silhouette, the color blocking, like the texture of the different materials, whether it's like Nubuck or suede. I, I don't, I, I don't know. Like, I don't even know what to say. Like I like scroll through Instagram and I see like a pair of shoes and like, I just get chills, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's kind of silly. And, um, you know, nowadays, like I was talking to my friend Tyler about this yesterday. Like when you start getting into watches, you're spending so much money on a watch that like a pair of shoes seems like nothing. So now like I just buy so many pairs of shoes. It's like stupid. Like I can't even, I don't even have anywhere to put them all. I have like over 400 pairs of shoes. Like I just, I don't, I had like a, a room in my basement where I kept them and that got filled. So now I just have like another 150 pairs just in my office. So it's like a problem probably, but I don't know. Like they make me happy. Like just looking at them brings me joy. So um, I don't know. Like, yeah, sneakers are, definitely a, a big thing for me um is there, was like anything, the first thing. is there anything in the skate community where you, uh if you're like a skater 
and then you see someone who's not a skater wearing skate shoes do you look down on them uh no 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 um so like um i remember in like middle school that was like a that was like a thing when like chicks would wear like airwalks or vans yeah that was like oh like why is that chick wearing airwalks or vans you know like she obviously just wants to like look cool for like the skater kids you know the skater boys <laughs> or whatever and like i remember that being like a small thing back then but now like skateboarding when i was a kid skateboarding was for like outcasts that's why I, that's why i was into skating was because i did like i don't know i was like self-conscious i wasn't athletic like i i would just sit in my house and watch movies yeah so like um i just did, felt like i didn't fit in anywhere and so skateboarding was like i don't know i guess back to the future like i watched back to the future and like marty mcfly made skateboarding look so cool and then like yeah. the hoverboards and stuff and um yeah like once i found skateboarding it was like kind of a community that like em like embraced me like i had like a crew and like friends for the first time um that like felt tight-knit and like there was like a lot of camaraderie um but it was like very much like an outcast thing like a counterculture thing but these days skateboarding is like cool it's like ha you know like Louis Vuitton makes skate shoes, friggin', you know, that was like unheard of when I was a kid, you know? So I don't really care now, but I will say this. I don't really, I don't really wear skate shoes. I like these days, like skateboarding's corny, like to me, like the skate skate stuff is kind of corny. Um, so, and when I was a kid, like we couldn't afford the skate shoes for most of the year, we could get like one pair on like Christmas or birthday. We would go to Marshall's and buy like Nike Bruins and Adidas shell toes and skate in those. And a lot of like amateur skaters who weren't making good money off skating would do the same and we would see them in the videos and that's what they would be wearing. So, you know, Converse, uh, the Dr. J low, which I guess they call the pro leather, but they were suede. So I don't really like calling it the pro leather cause they weren't leather, but you know, um, like those shoes, like just, they look so cool and made a big impression on me. But today, like, when I go skating, I kind of like get a thrill of skating in shoes that aren't made for skating. So yeah. I don't know. Asics just started a skate line. Um, so every brand is like throwing their hat in there. And Asics just started a skate line. Actually, it's been around in Japan for a few years, but they just brought it to the States. And there's this uh, dude on the team, um, Quasi, and he in the video, he's like skating the running, the trail running shoes. And to me, like his footage looks so sick because he's not skating the skate shoes. He's skating the like trail running shoes. It just looks so dope to me. So I don't know. I like runner running shoes for some reason. Like that's not just running shoes, but running shoes. Lifestyle, is like lifestyle is shoes. Yeah. But like, you know, lifestyle shoes could be like Adidas shell toes, superstars or campus or whatever, which just have like a plain flat sole where it's like a running shoe will have like that, you know, elevated toe. Mm -hmm. um I, I don't know what it is but I've always just thought those look so cool like just running shoes um yeah. I like all those though like all classic shoes the only shoes that I never really like was into was um basketball shoes mm. um you know like Jordans and stuff like that uh that they never really did anything for me um so you know but I I don't know like I don't have one brand either like I was really in New Balance for a long time um for like 10 years i was really into new balance um but 
there's not like one brand that I think is sick. Like I like all these brands, like even random brands. Like I really like tree torn. Um, I really like Saucony. Um, so there's like a Saucony lot of Saucony is really sick. Some of yeah. the, uh, yeah. And then, yeah. Anyway, the reason why I asked you that question is because growing up, I wore a lot of skate shoes and I was never a skater. So yeah. <laughs> I was like, is there a thing where you secretly look down to people who didn't skate, but just really liked collecting skate shoes? No, I mean, now I think it's sick. Like looking back, I'm like, oh damn like that was kind of cool you know because i was into supras um and then i had like the sky top sky top twos the tk societies and then because justin bieber wore them and then um after that i mean justin skated so yeah he does i mean i've seen footage of him he's like not terrible at skating either like he's i I wouldn't know how to judge but he's pretty i mean like he's pretty decent like i've seen footage of him like I mean, Lil Wayne skates too, but like Justin Bieber is like better than Lil Wayne for sure. Yeah. Um, and then and then from Supras, I went into like Nike SBs because I was so, I became so infatuated with like the inspirations behind each dunk. And then mm-hmm. like the Metacoms, the Metacom 2s, the the City Pack, the like the, the Mama Bear collection. Um, but then like I collected them just out of, I wouldn't even say their art to me because I think it was too young to understand that. I just thought that they were pretty and and they were cool. Like I remember, and these were, you know, now skate shoes are huge, like you said, but back then there were, you know, small forums online and niche groups of people kind of transacting in them. And then, yeah, I just thought they were cool. Like the, what the dunks, I remember I owned like two pairs of those um and then every time i see them pop up at some sort of auction i kind of just like slap myself like if only right if only i had kept all the the nike sbs that i had bought when i was like really young until now i could buy some really nice decent watches with that money but dude i think you made enough out of watches man like don't be greedy i mean that's true well i mean think about this like a lot of skaters um i mean the dunks you're talking about are like the kind of second round of dunks and and yeah. the first round they're not round, like the real skate dunks yeah yeah the first round of dunks where that you know they were doing collaborations with all the original team um dude i mean like no one expected those to be like valuable like everyone just skated in them and yeah. and then like they ended up being super collectible i mean i remember like yeah. the Reese Forbes denim ones were like 5k yeah. Um, yeah. and like the Danny Supas New York ones were like crazy money. And I just remember like when I was a kid, like if you were able to get a pair of dunks, because like a lot of skate shops didn't carry Nike cause they had like minimums. Um, yeah. but if you could go to a shop that had a pair of dunks, um, you would just get those shoes and you would skate in them. It wasn't really thought of anything else, but just like a skate shoe. Yeah. You know? Like the Supreme um, dunks made for like the Supreme shops with the elephant print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were yeah. you can find some beat up like pairs of those. Um and and you you can tell they're they were obviously like skated in. And then nowadays yeah. they go for yeah, like five, six K. Um Yeah, that's crazy. I never was like super into Nike SB. Um I will say I recently picked up a pair of so Nike actually did a skate line in the in the mid nineties, the mid to late nineties. 
uh, they actually have these really sick commercials. If you go on YouTube and you type in, what if all athletes were treated like skateboarders? That campaign that Nike did, they ran these commercials on television and they were so sick because it was like tennis players getting like kicked out of the tennis court by security guards and like getting thrown up against the wall, like for playing tennis on a tennis court. It was really good. But like the shoes back then, like in that era were impossible to find. Like you could order them out of East Bay. Like I remember East Bay catalog had them. Um, but those are super rare. But that first Nike program, like only lasted a few years. Mm. Interestingly enough, um, Bam Margera rode for them. And that was like before he was like hot. That was like before he was like, you know, had the show and all that stuff. Um, but I found a pair of those new old stock on eBay recently. And I got a pair of of those original Nikes. I think those are cooler than I skated a pair of dunks like early on. And I just didn't really they didn't really do anything for me. Like I wasn't really for me, like they didn't feel that great skating. And when I look to me, like looking down at my shoe when I'm skating, if I like, like what I'm looking down at, if I'm like, Ooh, that like toe box looks so sick. It yeah. like makes me want to try the trick more, like makes me want to like, whatever, like pushes me for skating. If I look down and my shoe looks sick. Yeah. Um, and the dunks just never, they never did it for me. Um, so I never really, like I never collected dunks. I never, and there's not like, even when I see footage of them, like, I don't think they look bad, but like, I don't see like clips and dunks to be like, oh, that looks so sick. But yeah. like, when I see someone skating like a pair of like, like shell toes, it like looks so cool. You know, like I like the high top ones, the pro models. Yeah. Um, And like, that looks really, just looks really cool to me. So I don't know, like, um, no, I think, I think like, it's it's known across the like the dunk dunks, especially dunk clothes, aren't the best skate shoes because they don't offer enough ankle support, right? Yeah, well, they make the high top ones, which I do. I will say the high top ones look cool, but I mean, to be fair, most skate shoes didn't offer a lot of ankle support, especially when I was growing up. They were all low top, so mm-hmm. they were in the eighties. There was like high top and mid top skate shoes, and then in the nineties, all low top. And now it seems like we've kind of come back to where people are skating mids and and highs again for skating and i will say i do think they look cooler um but having that extra ankle support it's a give and a take with skating because yeah you have extra ankle support but you also don't have as much mobility in your ankle so you may feel more restricted trying your trick because that that shoe comes up over your ankle bone and so it's sort of like you can get used to it and then it's great ankle support but if you can't get used to it, like you're not gonna be able to like do the trick because it's not gonna feel right. So there's gotcha. kind of like this weird, there's kind of like this weird balance. It's kind of like wearing pads, you know, like obviously like wearing knee pads or whatever. It's like really protective. You're not gonna like hurt your knee if you fall down on it. But at the same time, they're super restricting, gotcha. and they just look and they just look dumb. So like that's part of skating is like it's like ice skating. Like it's gotta look good, or like you're not gonna get scored well. Like you're not gonna get scored well if it doesn't look good. Like you're not going to feel good about your clip if, if uh, you're, you know, you're not looking good in the clip. And so like knee pads, helmets, like elbow pads, like, yeah, like they make a lot of sense, but they just, you don't look as cool in them. So like, what's the point? Yeah. Same thing with shoes, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of funny, but yeah, Dan. Yeah. Just taking this uh, a bit left field. Um, like I was looking at your Instagram page and um, you know, you're actually quite specific in the brands that I saw, you know, Vintage Movado, uh, Cartier, and 
you know, a strong fan of the reversos. Yeah. Yeah, so for sure. I was wondering, like, why did you pick, why did you pick those? Like, why did you pick those ones? And even when you look at like the range of reverso, right? I mean, it's been out since like, well, probably, yeah, about a hundred years now, over a hundred years. So well, which category of reversos, you know, did you go for? So that's a really good question, man. Um, so, um, like I said, when I first started getting into vintage, um, it, it was cheap. Like these watches were inexpensive. Um, and you know, I could just buy a bunch of stuff and see what I liked. Um, so I got to try out a lot of things and then there were just certain things that I felt were undervalued or underappreciated or just felt really good on my wrist. Like the quality was there, the, the design was there, like everything just clicked for me on my wrist and it didn't, if it, sometimes it was popular watches, right? Like watches that were trendy, but oftentimes it was watches that nobody else was paying attention to. Like no one else gave a shit about. And I actually kind of like, like that because I think being like Eric wind always has always told me that I'm like a very counterculture person. And I think that I'm just a contrarian, like, uh, it's it's like the way I was born. It's like why I felt like an outcast as a kid. It's why I, I probably started skateboarding. It's probably like, I don't know why I am the person that I am, but I get a thrill out of having stuff that nobody else knows what it is except for me and a few people. Like, And then, so like there's kind of elements of all that stuff. Like, A, I got to try it out. I This is what I really liked. And I just focused on what I liked instead of focusing on what I thought was going to gain value. Like I wasn't collect, like I don't collect watches as like investments, you know? Like I don't I don't collect watches as like a, a flex to like show off to other people. I like when I first started collecting watches, like nobody I knew even like was into watches. That was the only person my age that was into watches i had to like seek out other people and they were all like older guys i learned mm -hmm. a lot from them and they were cool but like this was all like a personal thing for me like it, it, it was nothing more than like to to like i don't know like please myself like get some sort of gratification out of like finding that rare watch or whatever and so you know um between that and just between being able to try everything out and like figuring out what I liked, like that's kind of what it, what it was. But I will say the Cartier Reverso thing is a little bit different because when I got into Cartier uh, tanks and Reversos, um, it was during a time when the market was hyper-focused on sports watches. So you would go on Instagram or you would go on the forums and you would literally see nothing but vintage subs, vintage mm -hmm. GMTs, and Daytonas and Speedmasters, and a little bit Seamasters and Railmasters, like early on, right? And I was like, man, like those watches are so like big and bulky, and like I don't know, they just weren't my vibe, you know? And I was like, what are other undisputably iconic models that nobody is paying attention to? Mm. And I was like the Cartier tank and the Reverso. Those are the two watches that like were made a hundred years ago and are still made today. They're undeniably like iconic and timeless, but nobody gives a shit. And so I actually started seeking them out with, because I was like, they're way underappreciated, like whatever. Mm. And um, 
that was kind of what it was. And then as far as era for reversos and era for anything, the the first is always the best in my opinion. So like Mm. to give you like an example, like when I started getting into music, my brother and I grew up, we were really into, into, into punk, like the punk music scene. When I first started getting into music, you know, um, I was listening to like whatever, like pop punk was popular in the, you know, mid nineties, right. Green day, uh, offspring like stuff like that and and i was like oh i like i like i actually like music because growing up we listened to hip-hop because i lived outside of outside of dc and like that's what was popular was hip-hop music and so um i listened to hip-hop but it wasn't i listened to it just because everybody else did it was like part of the culture where i where i grew up you know once i started actually getting into music and like paying attention to lyrics and like kind of developing my own like taste uh, it was it was it was punk and uh you know i went backwards i was like where did this begin and so my brother and i were like obsessed with going back and finding old bands from the 70s and er late 70s early 80s and i'll tell you like there was probably five six years of my life where i didn't listen to any music that was produced after 1984 Mm. because like to me the best was always the original like Everything else was just inspired by, right? Um, and I'm less strict about that now with music. Like, you know, you go through phases, like you're a kid and whatever. But yeah, like it's the same. So I have that same mentality with watches. So like for me, like when it comes to the Reverso, like the original ones are the best. Like that's the, that there would be no Reverso today without the original, like first series, 1931s, time only. So, so I, I got a question, which is like, um, you could argue that, you know, these watches were under the radar when you started to collect them. Well, they were actually. And they then were for that sure. is now, you know, pretty much in the community's attention. But still, you know, the reverso, would you I wouldn't say it's like really hit the community. Why do you think that is? Um, because people are stupid. I don't <laughs> like people ask me all the time, like, why is this not why is this sell for so much and like this doesn't? And my only response is like because the market's dumb. They just wait for someone else to do it. Have Goldberger post a freaking reverso a couple of times and everyone will be all over it tomorrow. Because like the problem with the watch community is like most people are just followers. They just follow like what the algorithm tells them to do, you know? And it's like, I don't know. Like it's it's kind of lame. Like it's kind of whack. Um, it makes me like, I don't know. Like I really love Cartier. Like I'm wearing a Cartier right now. Like I own a ton of Cartier, like vintage Cartiers and I love them. But I will say that like with it being so popular and trendy now, like I I feel like it's going to get chewed up and spit out. And so that makes me like resentful. If that makes any sense. Cause like, like there comes a time. The fact that a lot of people like it. And because of that, it's one of the factors you have in when you collect watches, you don't want everybody wanting to, you want a very niche, right? Yeah, sort of, but I, I also like that it's getting the credit that it's due. Like, uh, like, so there's some aspect where I'm like, oh, this is sick. Like people are diversifying their collection. They're not all wearing the same, the same watch, would you, you know? Would you say you like the validation that you picked something that was right by the community? Sort of, yeah. sort of. I mean, obviously it feels good to be validated, but at the same time, I also know that just as quick as Cartier became popular, it could be, it could fall out mm-hmm. of favor tomorrow easily. Yeah. And for anybody yeah. out there who thinks that that's not possible, you're wrong. Because I've been here for 20 years and I've seen lots of watches go in and out of fashion. Dude, 
you guys would laugh at me. I don't know how long you guys have all been to watches, each one of you, but dude, I remember when Panerai was the hottest thing. You, like, <laughs> liter- you, you literally could not get them at retail at all. Like they were all selling for double, triple, quadruple retail. Um, the thought of them falling out of favor was like never in anybody's mind. They're like, there's no way these are ever going to go down in value, you know? So everybody wants to think like, it's the same thing with like the, the Royal Oaks and like the Nautiluses mm. and stuff. Like when they were at the height, like, yeah, people were like, they're never going to be lower. They're only going to go up. And I'm like, are you insane? Like, it's just a trend. It's like the same thing goes with Cartier. Do I think a Cartier tank Louis is going to be three grand ever again? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm just saying like, like to think that because something is like really hot right now, it's going to be hot forever. Is it kind of silly? And that's why for me, like I just buy and wear what I like and I don't really care. I try to buy the best example I like at the best price I possibly can. Um, But I also like, I'm also one of those people that I believe in like paying up for quality. Like if you, Mm. like you're going to be happier um, if you just buy like, the the like the one that you really really like even if it's a little bit more money like in two three four five years from now who's gonna like you're not even gonna remember you know like mm. what does it even matter like i have a lot of guys who hit me up there like you know hey i want this watch this is my dream watch and then they can't afford that watch right now so they buy something in the intermediate to like mm. like kind of scratch that itch and then three months later like i want to sell this and i'm like yeah. Well, dude, yeah. you settled on like a subpar example, so you're you're, you're it's going to be hard for you to sell it. So, yeah. Anyways, go ahead. No, no. I just wanted to like ask from your experience. Um, you know, with the early reversos, right? How easy is it to find a good one in good condition? Extremely difficult. Yeah. Extremely right. Difficult. I don't think yeah. it's easy. Like, because yeah. they all the, like the dials. To be honest, look shit. Like the condition is always just not good enough. I find yeah. when I look at them, right? So do you have any tips on that? Or like a lot of them, a lot that? of them are refinished too. Um right. and yeah, like dude, it's it's really hard. I mean, think about this is a watch from the 1930s. Okay. This is a watch from the 1930s that um was not waterproof. Okay. It had Tavanus movement in, in it, which they don't make those anymore. Like the parts are scarce, right? Um, so yeah, like for one to survive 90 years and still be like mid condition, it's obviously extremely rare. Um, I've been lucky enough to find a few over the years. I, I own a few in my personal collection, but I have sold a few too. Uh, one of them I sold cause it was a double in my collection. I already had the same exact configuration, but I sold a couple other ones just because it's like, you know, how many, how many of the same watch can you really own? Even if it's a different mm. dial configuration. Yeah. Um, and you just don't think about it, but I will say, despite, um, the fact that the reverso has not gotten a lot of like hype on social media, um, they have gone up in value considerably, um, over the last few years. Um, I, I mean, you used to be able to get like an original reverso in pretty decent condition for like under 10 grand easily. And like those days are, I think are over, um, but I could easily see the reverso becoming you know, a crazy valuable watch because of how rare they are. Um, yeah, exactly. Especially that in good condition. Rarity, right? Yeah. Because especially when it's rare, it is it, not just the potential. It just it just by the fact of the numbers, it you just get a few people interested in it. It's just going to shoot up, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's all it takes. That's all it takes. Because same thing with Cartier. Like, um, 
you know, their, their, their production numbers are just so much smaller than their competitors. So much smaller than Rolex, so much smaller than Omega. Um, I'm not talking about modern, I'm talking vintage, right? You talk Cartier pre-1970, like they're so freaking rare. Like, but even the Cartiers from like the seventies, you know, um, those are really rare and compared, compared to Rolexes from the seventies. So, you know, um, and that's why like they went up in value so quickly because if there's a run on something that's already scarce yeah, and you know, that, that is the thing that the Rolex kind of confuses me because they're really not rare. Like I worked in the pawn <laughs> business and we would get vintage Rolexes in all the time. Like they yeah. weren't rare. So with you want like having this, um, you know, love for like really rare watches, right? Do you have like a particularly rare watch out there that's your holy grail that you're looking for, and or is that like eludes you? I don't know, man. Um, people ask me that a lot. Like, what's your grail? Um, mm, yeah, I don't know. Like, I I have a few pieces that like I would consider like grails. Um, I also like don't want to like blow up <laughs> like i don't want to say like what my grail is because then people yeah i was just gonna ask you for well, go on, i got man. more competition <laughs> then i then i got more competition yeah, before you got them. for it you've already got um, them but uh yeah no i mean um well no i mean so grails that i do own um i will say like that movado that you talked about earlier on the um the m the m95 the uh with the 565 case that was a grail for me for a really long time to just own one of those. Cause they're really rare. They only made them for a few years. Like they have those like cool pushers. People call them like the Tosti Tani pushers, but it's the same case manufacturer and the came same case design as the paddock five, six, five, but with a chronograph. Um, and then that one with brigade numerals unpolished case, like that was like a grail for me. Like I was looking for one of those for like seven, eight years until wow. I found one that oh, I could nice. actually buy. Yeah. Um, the other one that was a big grail for me that I looked for for a long time was the uh, Universal Genève Tri Compacts with the teal dial. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks, thanks to Adam for hooking me up with that one. Um, he found a really great example and and uh, gave me first shot at it and uh, love that watch. That was like a grail for me. Um, any 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 Cartier tanks that are pre nineteen seventy that are in really good condition, all original condition. Those are all all grails to me. Like I'm wearing like a, a 1969 tank normal. Um, right now I have a 1962 tank normal. And then I have a 1965 tank normal extra, uh, extra flat. Um, that one's like a couple millimeters thinner. Like those are all like, I guess I would consider them grails. Like yeah. I have like a, I have like a cool tank cornice with like a, like a gilt dial. Um, that I really like. And then of course, like I have this one reverso that I got many years ago, off ebay there was like really crappy pictures it was in the uk um but i could tell the strap and the buckle were old and original and so i just took a shot at it won that watch and like I, when i got it and opened up the box i was like oh my god like this is the nicest vintage reverso i've ever seen it's like i'm not gonna say it's new old stock or anything like that but it's so mint you know it's like to me like that's a grail um but i also the really like my cold. Yeah. Oh box. yeah. The, I mean, oh, the, that's almost pretty cool just to go and searching for the box. <laughs> Dude, the boxes, well, I'll say this, the boxes are way rarer than the watches. Um, right, I've yeah. only seen, and I'm not talking about in my, in real life, I've only seen pictures of four boxes ever. And I have two of them. 
So I've only seen two other boxes that I don't own in like even pictures on the internet. That's how rare the box, the reverso boxes are. I found a ladies one recently, a ladies reverso from 1931, which is even rarer than the men's one by a long shot. And it came with the original box. It's like totally nuts. Um, I got an extract from JLC and because I was always interested to see like were the ladies ones, did they come out along with the men's one or did they come out later? Like maybe the men's was successful and there was like a request to make a smaller version. But I was in, I was uh, pretty surprised to find that the production of this watch was 1931 on the extract. So oh, wow. the one that I found is actually first year of production, which is pretty, pretty cool, you know? Um, but yeah, I like modern watches too. I would say like, if you were to tell me like, what's, what's a grail for you today, I would say like, um, uh, a 34 millimeter Philippe Dufour would be like a grail for me. If I could like design a dial and do that. Um, like, I don't, I don't think I could afford one, but like, like if somehow like I came into the good graces of to do four family and they're like, Hey Kevin, like we can do it for your budget. Like that would be a dream come true for me. I just wasn't love this kind of like lottery that they would do. I don't even Jack know. Pack. I don't even know. I wasn't back in that time. Like I wasn't independent watches were not in my purview. I was like deep into vintage during that time. Um, and I, you know, I wish I was around back then, like to care. Um, but I, I wasn't, I mean, I knew who Philippe Dufour was, but modern watches were like, I was just so out of them because I was into modern watches for a long time for like the first five or six years, seven, no, first like seven or eight years of my collecting was all modern. And then I went all into vintage and I just was so sick of modern because, you know, like the modern thing, the thing that bothers me about modern watches is that the brands are corny. So like, I just like, they, I don't know, like the, they're like walk red carpets and like endorse celebrities and like. <laughs> The people there like don't even like the people who work at these companies don't even seem to care about watches at all. They're more like there for clout and to like rub shoulders with like famous people um, and go to like fancy dinners and stuff. Um, for the most part, there are some cool people, but like for the most part, someone's like, got to eat. Someone's got to eat. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I saw you guys did like a didn't you do like a thing with um, Schmidt from Jorn or excuse me from Longa? Yeah. Um, so long as like one of the brands, like one of the only conglomerate owned brands that I like can't talk trash about. They're the only ones <laughs> that like do everything, in my opinion, the right way. You know, um, they just make the best watches they possibly can to the market that they should be doing is that the, like they have a vision of what their company is. They know what their market is. And they make the and they know what their price point is and they make the best watches to fit into that category. Whereas everybody else I feel like is like throwing stuff against the wall, like seeing what sticks and like following trends and like, yeah, like that's cool and everything. But at the same time, it's like, every time you do something corny, I'm losing a little bit of respect. And then after you do it for so long, I'm going to lose total respect and I'm never going to even want to own one of your watches, you know? So, you know, but yeah, like a Philippe Dufour or like, um, if the Ron Ferrier would like, get their head out of their ass and make a smaller watch. That would be a dream for me. Um, I love Laurent Ferrier. Um, I, they're not perfect. Like, like long is a little more perfect, but uh, you know, Laurent Ferrier, I just really, their design language really speaks to me and I, I would love to own one, but they're too big.
So that would also be another grail for me. Um, I mean, it kind of, you answered my question, which is like, if you could design your perfect watch, what would it be? Um, so 34 millimeter Dufour with a kind of like customized dial and what, what material case? I don't know. Um, whatever he would offer me, I would want a white, <laughs> I would, I would want it to be white metal because I'd want to wear it, you know? Um, probably, I mean, I, I would do like stainless steel or, or, um, stainless steel, white gold. Um, dude, if he could do palladium, that would be the best for me. So palladium would be number one. So if, he, why, if I could get him to do palladium. Yeah. Why do you think not enough brands are making smaller watches? Well, I think they are now. Um, I think, I think that, uh, look, the brands are always a few years behind. Right. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. just, that's just how they, how it's almost not even their fault. Like, um, I was talking to my friend about the Vacheron 222, right? Like he got the call for it. He's never bought a watch from Vacheron before. Actually, there was a few people that never bought anything. They have no purchase with Vacheron. They asked for a 222 thinking no chance. And then like a month later, they got the call. And he's, they're like, wow, this is a great opportunity. But to me, I'm like, no, they just came out with that watch too late. Like they're a day late and a dollar short. So that is watch it too is big? really, no, no, it's not too big. The size is fine. But, um, well, I don't know. I've never tried one on, but I think it's 37 millimeters. It wears more like a 38, 39. I mean, the size is fine to me. It's like the historical size. But what, what I'm saying is like, they saw that the watch was hot and then they started developing it. Mm. And then by the time it comes to market, not like those watches are already like fading. Like they're mm -hmm. the, that whole like hype on those like sports models at the price points that they were at. So like they came out with that watch at 60 K right. Yeah. Which is probably reasonable, but now it's 74 K. Well, the, oh, the, like with the price increase. Yeah. So like a lot, a lot of people are like, well, the second end market for these is falling for the vintage ones. So why would we buy a modern re-edition one at such a high price point? Like that watch in reality, a Vacheron 222 in gold should be like 50 to 60 grand retail. But they, they're making it more because they're like, oh, it's hot right now and we can, we can do that. I mean, Cartier does the same thing, right? With like the Chinois, the Normal, like those are tell, tell tell i mean i don't know if you can share but like tell our audience what you said about like the custom order pricing or something like oh so so cartier has been like kind of playing games with the custom order pricing so like um it used to be like if you were approved for a custom order the price would be like 10 to 15 percent above retail but um here lately i've been hearing from people and experience myself that Cartier is like trying to gouge on the, on the, on the special orders. They're like, they're like, they want to charge like double or even more, sometimes triple what the retail price of the watch will be. Um, and which is sort of like, look, I don't want to talk trash about, about them. Like, because on some level, like it's pretty sick that a big brand like Cartier will like even entertain doing a custom piece for somebody. You know, like when I was back in the, when I was back in the day, when, when, when I was like really into Panerai, you know, we had a tight knit relationship with like the higher ups at Panerai because it was a small brand back then in the early 2000s, you know? Um, so there was like, you could just talk to the CEO. You could just talk to like, like the, the, you know, the president of North America, like 
And the hopes of getting a custom Panerai was like, no one would even have thought of that. That's like crazy. Think about how much higher production Cartier has and how much more of a brand Cartier is than Panerai as far as market share goes. They don't have to do any of that stuff. So the fact that they do is like pretty cool, you know? And I, I've heard a lot of people like um, criticize their um, their their program, like they're doing too many of them, right? Like they're doing too many of these 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 pieces my argument would be like really like what's too many like 50 a year 100 a year like in the grand scheme of things that's a really small amount of watches the reason it seems like a lot is because we're all stuck in this social media bubble and we see all of them you know what i mean it's like that's why it seems like there's a new one uh, like they're making too many is because every month we see a new one well there's only 12 months in a year <laughs> you know what i mean like that's really not that many it's just, you know, people's perception of it. Um, but what I will say about like, you know, Cartier, you know, to give, you know, some sort of constructive criticism is like, if you're going to do that, like you can't do it one way and then just change it up because you've gotten a little bit of clout. Because if you start to do that, you start to piss people off. They're going to abandon your brand. Like this is the one thing about the brands that like, like, I, I don't think is healthy is the fact that the customer now feels like they have to earn the brand instead of the brand understanding that they need to earn the customer. And I think that's a very unhealthy relationship. Like ADs, watch brands, their goal should be to earn customers loyalty. It shouldn't be for the customer to have to beg and plead to get the like to get a watch from a brand. I think that's like not good. And so when they do get in that situation, like with the, you know, everything that happened during the pandemic, like they start to just get arrogant and cocky. And then it sort of like gives everybody a negative impression. And then just as quick as they went up, they can go back down. So I would just caution them to, you know, keep doing what you were doing, not change it on people, not get too arrogant and too cocky. And like, I don't know, like that was, that's like the thing that was kind of a bummer um, about that. And then, you know, um, do a little bit better job designing your watches. Like, uh, on that note, wall. on that note, um, I want to talk about what you, one of what you said during one of your live streams regarding a few, um, newer, I guess, independent brands and then about how their design. And then you were telling me that you had like a few backstories that you could share. Oh, uh, Oh, 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 you're talking about Daniel Roth. Daniel Roth, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, technically Daniel Roth is not an independent anymore because they're owned by LVMH now. Um, so let's put that out there. But, um, you know, they came out, you know, they're, they had the, all this hype, like Daniel Roth is coming back and all this stuff. And I was genuinely like intrigued. I was like, oh, damn, like this could be really sick, you know? Um and then they dropped the watch and it's a tourbillon with a closed case back. By the way, the original one had a dual case back. So it wasn't even an exhibition case back. It was a dual case back that had more functions on the back of the watch. They, they come out with a solid case back. So they're not even like showing any movement finishing that they can do or anything, right? Which I felt like was kind of a cop out. But the worst thing was 
the font that they put on the dial was this like new age, like AI looking, like computerized looking font, like typeface. And I was like, this looks terrible. Like this looks like, like garbage. And then the price point was like 160 grand. I'm like, you can get a vintage one for like less than that, like a real one, <laughs> you know, like this doesn't even make any sense. So I came out with like some constructive criticism because I was like genuinely pissed because what it looked like to me was an LVMH crash cash grab. And then the first thing I think about is, well, damn, Daniel Roth has really shot up the last two years. Like how much did LVMH have to do with that run up? Like, are they, were they the ones funding all this? Were they the ones buying all the watches off collected man? Cause like the thing about collected man, like, I don't know, like I said, I get deep into stuff and, and I kind of question everything. I'm very skeptical. Um, and you know, I'm not calling anybody out. Like, I don't know those dudes at Collective Man. They seem nice. Um, they have really great photos as a photographer. Like, you guys kill it. But, um, like, man, it is kind of weird that, like, they keep getting the same watches over and over again, right? Like, so to me, like, is it so far-fetched to believe that, like, LVMH was just feeding them watches and then every quarter they just put the watch back up at a higher price and then say it sold within instantly? And, like, now they're molding a market to bring out the junk and cash in on the junk. And I'm not saying that the new Daniel Roth is junk, but comparative to the original that had a dual case back, this doesn't even have an exhibition case back. So I was like, it's definitely not 160K watch, you know? So to me, like, I was just kind of pissed. Like I was offended. I was like, what you guys have done is offensive. And then you didn't even put like a nice type font on it, which like was glaringly ugly. Um, and so, you know, um, the dude, what's his name? Gene Ar Arno. He like was very diplomatic and like wrote, wrote me, like wrote some comments in response to my video. And like, he was really like diplomatic. He even DM'd me and stuff. But then I tried to like have a conversation with him in the DM and he never responded. So it's clear that he just like sent me a DM, like diplomatically to like, get me to like chill out and back off or whatever. But watches and wonders was like a few days after that. And my friend Adam uh, was over there and uh, he was like, I guess he met with those dudes for some reason. And he was like, dude, like, I didn't watch your entire video. Like, what did you say? Like, everybody here hates you. Like, everyone here is pissed at you. And I was like, good. They should be <laughs> like, maybe they'll learn. And then um, a few weeks later, they changed the font, like back to the original font. They changed it back to like the... <laughs> The OG font. Of course, they didn't do an exhibition case back. Um, oh, and they did a collab with Messina, making like Messina like a dealer for them. So clearly they hadn't sold all the watches because I was getting all these emails from Messina, like telling me to sign up for the watch or something like that. And then, of course, like two days after that, they were sold out. And like Jean Arnaud, like put on his Instagram, same watch with a new font or whatever, like winky face. But then like the dude didn't even tag me, <laughs> like at least have the common decency to tag me. But uh, I don't know. It was just it was kind of funny. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, that was just like a funny story. But I think like that whole thing could really be said for any of these brands. Like, um, you know, even brands I love like Cartier, like, look, guys, like the Chinois, like, I don't know, like it could have been better. The normal like, could have been better. Like you should really tap a few enthusiasts before you like put a watch into production and get some notes 
And then that way you can get something right the first time instead of like having this watch, like that just the proportions aren't right. And the dial isn't, it's just, I don't know. Like it's frustrating to me. And then like their merit of success is like, well, it's sold out. And it's like, well, you only made a couple hundred of them. Of course it's sold out. Like that doesn't mean that it was a great release just because it's sold out. But to them, like that's all that matters. But they set the bar so low by making so few they're like, of course it's going to sell out. You know what I mean? So I don't know. Like it's kind of frustrating, but like all those brands do that because they're like conglomerate brands. They, uh, like I said, I don't think the people there are like real, like most of them are real watch people. It's just a job for them. It's just like a nine to five. And, uh, you know, they get more gratification, like going to fancy parties than like, like appreciating the actual watchmaking. I think that's what I've been hearing across the board, like regarding the new tank normal, it's like more vintage uh, enthusiasts are not so happy about the release or the design, but then people who just, I guess, have been following the more modern iterations from a few years ago, like since the Centre, the, yeah, it's, I think it's a great thing that they're doing the tank normal on the seven link bracelet. So it's like, okay, at what point do you draw the line or the balance, right? Like, some part of it it's it's cool that you're taking design old designs and then putting them into the modern catalog again but then how do you sat satiate um both vintage enthusiasts and also like just modern consumers well to me like do it right right like what i said before make the best watch you possibly can and like forget everything else so like with the tank normal they have tons of archives. Like there's no reason for the proportions of that case to be so wrong. Like, I think they did a pretty good job on the bracelet, but what I can tell by looking at the watch is they designed that watch for the bracelet. And then they only offered the bracelet model and very limited because the, the head is so thick and so fat and that's a very small movement inside. So it does not need to be that big and fat. I can tell you. Um, mm. So they could have made that, like a lot, like I'm not saying they had to make it identical to the original. I think there's ways they could have improved on the original. Like for instance, that that vert I like vertically brushed dial, so I'm not putting a vertically brushed dial down. But that watch was thirty thousand dollars. Like why are we not doing it? Why are we not doing a uh, an enamel dial for that? Like that would have been really nice to have a true uh, fire enamel dial or a porcelain dial for the normal, right? If you're gonna you're gonna charge thirty grand for it anyway, like you can afford to do that. And you can definitely get the proportions right. But I think all these brands, they're so, they have like so much hubris where they're just like, we can never do anything wrong because nobody ever tells them. You know, you think Waco is like telling them that they suck? No, because like he wants advertising dollars from them. He wants special treatment from them, you know? So like none of these like journalists, like watch journalists can actually tell the truth, you know? Like the dude seriously sat down it's the funniest video ever. He seriously sat down with Speak Marin to talk about the ripples when it came out and like sat there with a straight face while they were saying how great of a watch it was. It's like, that's the ugliest like luxury watch to come out in my, like ever, like in my opinion, it's terrible. Which watch and, is like, it? The, the uh, Speak Marin ripples. <laughs> <laughs> it's like their version of the Nautilus. It's like the Speak Marin version of like the Nautilus. It's like their sports model or whatever. It's so ugly. It has like the sub dial is at like two o'clock. It's so bad. 
Um, but like, yeah, like you're just, I think that they like bank on like the opinion of like, whatever those guys, like whatever guys you want to say, like, I don't want to throw people under the bus. I guess I can throw way under the bus because he blocked me on Instagram recently, but, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, like the, like the, like the climbers of the world or like the Wacos of the world, or even like the Goldbergers of the world, like those guys have like learned that by kind of keeping their mouth shut and waiting for, you know, brands to approach them to like, cause they see them as tastemakers, which they are, and that's undeniable. Um, they're like, we can benefit more by like kind of ass kissing these brands and telling them everything they do is great. And so that we'll be in favor with them. But in reality, like that's not helping the brand, you know? And it's like not helping, I don't know, like the watch market as a whole, because like we can see through it. Like we can see like, this is all just advertising, you know? And it's just corny. So I don't know, like, I don't think it's, I said this on another podcast before too, like, I don't think it's that difficult for them to like each one of these brands to be like, Hey, we're going to have a non-disclosure agreement. We're going to have a few private contractor collectors that are respected in the industry to have a panel when we're make, making a historic release. And we want to want like, it could be three people, four people, five people, whatever. We want notes before we put it into production on how we can make it the best watch possible. And that's not very hard to do. It wouldn't cost them a lot of money. Like, I know it's not as sexy as like paying Jake Gyllenhaal to wear it on the freaking red carpet, but it would at least bring out like a piece that's like well represented. And I don't know. Well, like, I don't know, have historical relevance. That's, that's, I just don't think that's a hard thing to do. And I don't know why brands don't do that. Cool. Well, um, I searched up the speak Marin after you, you, you mentioned it. I've never seen that watch before, but. What'd you think? Look at it. It's, it's interesting to look at. Um, okay, we're we're going into the reversal round, Kevin. Um, cool. so fire up like a question to each of us, or like have us all answer the same question, whatever you want. Uh I'll start with you. Sure. What's up with the bun straps? It's <laughs> just fun. Like, um, I'm trying to have fun with stra- I'm I, I'm addicted to straps. It's it's really not healthy to have, um, because I I pay more attention and than I should have probably and time to to designing them and then I wear them around and take photos in them. I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> but like, like this oddball thing I'm doing. I get it, but like the bun strap is bad. You got to retire the bun. It's just the worst thing. <laughs> Well, okay. I, I, in I in the bun straps defense, it's actually not a bun because the strap doesn't go inside the thing. It, it's like yeah. a one piece strap that gets t- the only reason why I did it to that. You're talking about the 96, right? I don't know. I've just seen you with a bun strap. It might have been the 96. I don't remember yeah. what it was. Well, I have tried, I have put it on the FP genre before, but that was completely for fun. I I don't really wear that one on the on the bun but then i did it on the netty six because it was a fixed lug uh watch mm-hmm. and i was like you know what let me try this something new and uh design something and it took a long time to to make too so by the time i received it i was like oh it's actually not that bad not not well, bad it's not, in my opinion it's not as illegal as the guy who put the bun on a crash that was 
that was bad. But the bond to me, I know the one that you're talking about. Yeah. The bond to me is offensive. And the fact that, Ooh, look at that one. (laughs) So sick. Um, the bund to me is, is offensive. And, uh, the fact that like Paul Newman gets like all this clout for being some tastemaker when that dude was wearing a bund strap blows yeah. my mind. And then Nina Rint too, was like wearing a bund. It's so bad. It's Oops. such a bad look. Nina Rint. So like, you know, the universal Genev compacts, it's called the Nina. Yeah. It's named after her. Cause she, she has a famous photo wearing it at like a, a race. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I guess it was Johan Rint's wife or daughter. I don't know. Um, yeah but uh, that's why yeah. that's why i was just having fun don't worry i won't put on all my watches just not 96 <laughs> all right um i had to ask you that question there was two questions i had to ask you and i didn't know uh, which sure. one, i didn't know which one to ask so i asked that one because it was sure. the most it was the most brutal no um, worries i don't know i don't know what other questions to ask people um doesn't have to be watch related doesn't have to be watch related yeah Oh, geez. Um, I kind of want it to be watch related because I feel like we didn't talk. I like I didn't get to know like the watch wise, like what everybody. I know what you're into, Jacqueline. So, you know, but I don't really know like what everybody else's vibes are. So, um, you know, what are you what are you guys into right now? Yeah, like. Like maybe, maybe that So actually Dan, Dan asked me like what my grail was. So maybe I'll throw that back at him. Like what's his grail? Oh, he has so many. That's the problem. That's, that's good. So he'll have a a good answer. Hmm. Grails. It's hard when you're on the spot. Actually, you know what? Ask him, I'm going to step in, ask him uh, what his, ideal collection would be because we have talked about this numerous times yeah, um, oh, and I'm he's put a lot of thought into it uh, yeah but not said that on the podcast before so okay. i'd keep the uh i want i've got a reverser anyway so i keep that um i got the uh tribute 1931 the uh duo face ultra thin I really like great that. Watch. I mean, that's, that's almost like my go-to actually my daily beta mm-hmm. uh it just works with everything and i don't worry about it and it if, when i say work with everything i don't i mean like occasions and outfits so i just love that watch um i still want that double balance so if they feel listening come on man right just just sort me out okay my co-hosts are here are like just give up <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, if they give it to me, they give it to me. So that piece there. I'm just and... waiting for it to be discontinued. <laughs> like one day you wake up and you see on Instagram, discontinued, 41 millimeter double. I'll, I'll, see, I'll, I'll see. I'll see if Sonny Boy Wang is there letting go of it. <laughs> yeah. And um, I want, I'll keep my uh, data graph, right? So I really love that. Which and... data graph do you have? The Gen One, yeah, uh, it, platinum. platinum, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, and uh, I want a Rolex Daytona white dial, uh, modern watch, ceramic uh, bezel, um, which is probably like a weird choice, right? Because you hear all that and you think, but then like I was just saying that you kind of touched on it. We live in the bubble, which is like Instagram, which, yeah, like. 
but if you take if you go out of that bubble right that that watch actually is like the holy grail for probably 98 percent of the people right yeah and, and also it it's also like the most um from the most recognized brand you know i reckon you know most people not everyone who's even listened or heard of patek philippe you know but they would have heard of rolex and i actually think it's just a great looking watch if you take away like the hype and whatever i actually like the way it looks right and i like the way it wears i like the size of it i like the fact that you don't have to think about it i wouldn't get i wouldn't like be so hurt if i got scratched scratched it or something so all of those pieces i feel like i could actually wear them without worrying and i think they work with so many different things so i think it's a very flexible collection and then um i think that leaves me with one more slot which um maybe Jacqueline's Breguet um 96 you know something like that if she ever wanted to sell it or something like that right a dress watch basically because the reverse is a dress watch which is like rectangular but a dress watch which is uh circular round yeah I, I, I would like I would like something like that but just very very clean yeah. um so something like the 96 or I haven't quite figured that one out because you could go like, okay, yeah, independent Roger Smith, you know, but I want something that's realistic. <laughs> so the Datagraph, in my opinion, is one of the best watches made in my lifetime. Uh, I was born in 1984. Um, I believe that that the Datagraph is one of the best watches that was made in my lifetime, and that uh, that watch will be a very desirable icon in the future. I think that by the time my kids are my age, that will be like the grail that everybody wants. That's my personal like view. And I've told a lot of people that I don't own one. They're too big for me, but um, it's um, just undeniably like a beautiful watch. And um, in some ways a perfect watch. I mean, some people complain it's a little bit thick, but um, it's, you know, by today's standards, it's still like not huge. And it's very beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. So that one, like, in my opinion, you, you already own a grail. Like, that's a grail watch, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, but yeah, just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. For all you investment buffs out there, you want to buy watches for investments. Like, don't buy what the hottest possible thing is, because that means that it's probably just a fad and a trend. Buy the thing that's, like, gone up gradually and is undeniably iconic and important. That's, you know, it's a yeah. long haul piece. I think it's not like you're going to cash in overnight, but it's going to be like a super desirable piece in the future, 20, 30 years from now, for sure. Well, it's the piece that Philippe Dufort decided to wear. So. Absolutely. Yeah. No question about it. And he's not wrong. It's like one of the best modern chronographs, if not the best. What are you guys talking about? It's the piece that Long Long decided to wear, right? Yeah. yeah Long has the me. rose gold one. She's got one too. She has the rose gold one. Damn. What else you got in there? That's my question for you. What else is in that collection? You're like a sleeper. She's like quiet the whole time. And she's just got no, a data graph chilling. But, um, no, because I just like, I feel so, so guilty after Dan said that he would keep his. And then I was there thinking, I would be happy just to have three watches. And none of the three are the ones that I have. Jeez. That's crazy. Okay. That's too much. Spill, yeah. spill, spill. Yeah, you so I would change my Richard Mill because in my dream life, I would be like a sporty person and then I'll still <laughs> go for nice dinners, but then I'll be kind of quirky most of the days. So I'll be like, okay, 
change original, which is actually for outdoor because mine is white gold, right? So a light one that's for outdoors and doing sports. And then then um, um, independent would be, I know it's not independent, independent, but MBNF and or and or work, but it has to be crazy, like not easy to wear. And then just a nice dress watch. That would be Wait, like, what about what about long and high? Oh, I love Langenheim. It's so big, though. It's so, so, so big that, like... Big, yeah. Wait, wait, so what is she talking about? Which one's big? You're talking about even the, the... Like, no, you can't even wear the rectangular one. That's, like... No, the rectangular big. one's big. It's George. Yeah, George but even really the round big. ones. Um, nah. they, the 39 is like, the Friedrich. Huh? No, is it the Friedrich? Yeah, well, the Friedrich uh, is, like, the entry level. Yeah, but it's, like, even that 40... I know it, like, it's tapers 39. and it wears really well. It's It's actually quite thin. But it still like looks a little bit odd <laughs> on me for no. some reason. It's yeah. the same as your datagraph for sure. It would it wears the same. You might have tried really? on again. Yeah, okay, the thirty nine is great. I actually think so. The datagraph is like you said, way too thick, and uh, but then I it can you can get away with it by being like, okay, but look at the movement. Yeah, and yeah, and then like you said, it's so classic looking and everything. The cool the long and Haynes, you yeah, need to be in like good lighting. Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, yeah. So the the Langenheine, yeah. what's cool about them is like for a German brand, like you look at like a Lange and it looks like a city in the back, like the movement looks mm-hmm. like a city. Mm-hmm. But then a Langenheine looks like a town where like everything oh, is kind of spaced yeah. out. It's really yeah. dope. I think yeah. the Germans are crushing. I think the German brands are the best right now. They're like the most not corny. Um, the Swiss are super corny. Sorry, guys. You got, <laughs> yes. you got a lot. You got a lot of work to do. Yeah. your corn you know but y'all are fried out there but um i like the germans a lot i really like lang and heine like laurent ferrier they their watches are too big for me but mm-hmm. i will say like i tried on my favorite one that they made it's actually discontinued now but was the conrad which was a deadbeat seconds enamel dial with a Ooh. pointer date in the center deadbeat seconds is like my favorite um complication mm-hmm. it's just a really dope complication um but uh but I love Langenheine. So like if anybody ever comes to me and is like, Kevin, I was thinking of getting a Langenheine. I'm like, 100% you should get it. Because like, yeah, I want to live vicariously through oh them. God, yeah. yeah. And then yeah. They, there's this um, tiny diamond that they put in the movement, just one diamond. And I just think it's like, oh, so good. Yeah, they're yeah. a sick brand. I hope, I think I'm going to visit them next year, actually. Um, it's my 40th cool. next year. And my wife asked me what I want to do. And I told her I wanted to go overseas and go to some watch houses and i want to go to mm-hmm. germany is like number one and go to like Lange, grossman langenheine um mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah langenheine is sick but they they have no i've talked to them they have like no intent of making anything smaller than 39 yeah so, but i will say i tried it on and like it doesn't wear like crazy big it's still too big mm-hmm. for me to invest mm-hmm. a bunch of money in it because i won't mm-hmm. wear it you know mm-hmm. but um it's a dope watch for sure yeah yeah Cool. Alrighty. That's the end of the episode because we're <laughs> run out of time. Run out of time. Um, thank you, Kevin. It, like, like I said, it's, it's a great, you know, time talking with you and you're also like a bag full of stories. I feel like we didn't even get through some of the <laughs> other stuff we talked about yesterday. Yeah. Um, well, look, like, thanks for having me on and I'm sorry to everybody for my rambling. I just like, <laughs> I, I go on, I go off on tangents and on rants and 
Well, like, no, you're passionate. You can tell. And now, I now I know why your live stream was so enjoyable to watch because you literally, I'm talking about the 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 uh, Daniel Roth one. I was laughing so hard when I was watching you because, like you said earlier, you literally cannot hide your own emotion. <laughs> like you look yeah. so pissed in the live stream that it made that made it enjoyable to watch it's so funny because like it has no effect on my life at all but i get like so bad i'm like yeah like, no you oh. literally you're like oh my head like i can't think straight i can't i don't even know what to say about. i was like i was like triggered i'm like yeah i'm like a social justice warrior for watches yeah it's don't so, it's, don't it's delete bad. that don't delete that one. Oh, i'm not gonna delete it i don't look i got nothing to lose i don't work in the watch industry like I'm really, I'm just like a a husband, a father and a skateboarder that yeah. that's it. I'm into watches. Like, that's it. If, if you don't like what I have to say or like, like my opinions, like you can unfollow me. Like, that's cool. But I'm not going to like, I try my best not to self-censor, but sometimes like I'm a little too heated and I got to hold myself back a little bit. So yeah. Well, no, no, you're authentic. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. As always, thank you for listening to the Waiting List Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach out to us at the Waiting List Podcast on Instagram or via our private accounts. We'll see you on the next one. Bye. Bye. Bye.